your Locked on the New York Rangers, your daily podcast on the New York Rangers. Part of the Locked on Podcast Network, your team every day. Welcome back, Blue Shirts fans, to episode number 250 of the Locked On New York Rangers podcast. I'm your host, John Chick. That song you are hearing right now is, of course, Leave the Lights On from our good friends in Pacifier. You can check those guys out anywhere you get your music. And we got a very, very special episode for you guys today. I did not plan to do it this way. I know it's the 250th episode. Obviously, we want to do something big, and uh, we have indeed done just that because we've got former New York Ranger defenseman Tom Laidlaw. He played for the team back in the 80s, also played for the Los Angeles Kings. He's going to be joining the show in just a second here. He was just a beloved Ranger during his time with the Blue Shirts, just a hard-nosed, hard-working player. In the 2009 book entitled 100 Ranger Greats, Tom was ranked as the 87th greatest New York Ranger to ever lace up a pair of skates. So, like I said, we're very, very excited to have him on the show. We talked for quite a while, so... We're going to split this into two episodes. Say we'll be part one of our conversation with Tom Laidlaw. And uh, part two, we'll probably save that for Monday's episode. But uh, yeah, enjoy this. I'm going to stop talking now. Let's bring in Tom Laidlaw and get this thing going. Enjoy. All right. And so without any further ado, let's go ahead and welcome our special guest today, former New York Ranger defenseman Tom Laidlaw. Tom, how are we doing today, buddy? Excellent, bud. Great to see you. Yeah, you too. You too. Thanks for doing the show. And, uh, you know, I figure there's a lot we can get into today. You know, we'll talk a little bit about, obviously, your career with the Rangers, uh, the current Ranger team your appearance on Survivor, True Great Life, we got to do all that. But I figure, you know, we might as well start with the beginning of your career. And, uh, you know, you were drafted by the Rangers in the sixth round in 1978. I'm just curious back then, you know, with the draft and, you know, you look at the draft today and everybody has all their opinions about this team should take this guy and this team should take that guy. Did you have any sense that, you know, the Rangers were interested in you or did you have any idea when you were going to go in the draft? I mean, just give me a feel for that if you can. Uh, it's, it's kind of a funny story because the bottom line is no, we had no clue back then. Uh, we knew there was a draft. I, I, I'll be honest with you, I didn't even know for sure what the date of the draft was. You know, it, like wow. now, like I, I was an agent for 22 years, so the draft was a big thing. You know, bringing players to the, you know, everybody's all dressed up in the suits and uh, family members are coming with us. Um, uh, the funny story is, I'll uh, be careful with my language here, but uh, so I won't use the real words that were used, but I was uh, a buddy of mine up in Guelph, Ontario. I was from Brampton, Ontario. We had a farm, but he had a horse breeding farm, and I was working for them during the summer. It was a Saturday afternoon, and I was in the barn cleaning out the stalls with the you know the horse leftovers. And uh, uh, my father had got a phone call from the Rangers that they drafted me in the sixth round. He called uh, the farm. Again, no cell phones or anything. He called the farm. They brought me up to the farmhouse. And uh, my father gets on the phone and says, Tom, you were drafted in the sixth round by the New York Rangers. I said, well, what do I do now? He said, well, get back out there and finish cleaning the you-know-what out of the stalls. So that was my draft day. Yeah. Uh, and then even after the draft, they didn't contact me at all. It was kind of like, I, I, think, I think after a few months, I finally called the Rangers. And they're like, they're like, like what are you doing calling us? Like, get back up to school. And because uh, it was after my sophomore year, I was drafted. And get, you know, get back up there and finish uh, your, your college career. So uh, it, it was interesting. And in some ways... You know, I feel bad with the kids with the draft now because there's some kids that expect to get drafted now and don't, and they'll leave the building in tears or relatives in tears because it's such a big moment. It's almost too big of a moment because, I mean, other than the really the, the top picks that are you know pretty much certain that they're going to play, a lot of guys get drafted. Like every year out of the draft, teams say that they to get one guy out of the draft, each team that becomes a regular NHL player, that's pretty big, but sometimes two. Uh, so a lot of the guys that get drafted don't end up playing in the NHL. So there's this big expectation that they're, 
know, because they're drafted, it's a great day for them. It's going to happen. And it doesn't, you know, the work really just starts after you're drafted. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, once you get past like the first five, the first 10, maybe the first 15 picks or so, it, it becomes a little bit of a crapshoot. And it's just, yeah. you know, you have a good feeling about this guy or you have a good feeling about that guy. And it, it definitely is interesting to see, you know, certain first round picks never even make it to the NHL. But then you'll have guys that are undrafted like Artemi Panarin and, Look at him. I mean, he's one of the best players in the league. It really is an interesting process for sure. Yeah, it really is. And it's so hard to tell for 18-year-old kids, right? I mean, I, I think back when I was 18, I don't know about you, I, I was a mudhead. I didn't know what I was doing. You know? <laughs> and to think that, you know, it's like how, how do you develop in those years physically and mentally after you're, uh, after you're drafted at 18 years old? So, yeah, it is a crapshoot. And, you know, it's not like the scouts are wrong. It's just, yeah, I, I, as an agent, I had players that, you know, I, I thought we're going to be slam dunk NHL hockey players or great junior careers or college careers. And it just didn't pan out for whatever reason when they got to the National Hockey League. So it's, yeah, it, it's, a, it's a lot of guesswork, really. Now, had you ever been to New York City, you know, prior to being drafted by the Rangers? No, no. So, um, so my senior year, we'd gone to the national championship game. Uh, we ranked number one in the country. We played North Dakota in the final game in Providence, Rhode Island. We lost the final game. They were ranked number one in the first half of the year. We were ranked number one in the second half. So it was the two number one teams, and we ended up losing the final game. Uh, and it was still a great accomplishment for us because we had, my first year there was the first year they had a hockey program. So we took it from the worst team in the, in the country to the you know, number one or number two team in the country. Um, so at the end, when that was done, I went back up to Marquette with my buddies for about a week and had some fun. And then the Rangers brought me in to sign me to a contract uh, and then go down to play in New Haven, which was a farm team at the time. And uh, I had never been to New York City. Had no, like I, the biggest city I, I've been to Toronto, uh, but you know, I grew up on a farm, Northern Michigan University up in Marquette, Michigan. It's a small little mining town. And actually, we had a transit strike here in New York uh, when I was flying in. So it took me like about, and they didn't pick you up in a limo, anything. you just got a cab and got a receipt and they paid you back. Uh, it took me about two hours to get a cab, to take the cab from uh, LaGuardia Airport uh, to Madison Square Garden. And I, I, I'm sweating the whole, because you know, your whole life you've dreamed of now, you know, coming to play in the National Hockey League. And I've got my skate, my hockey equipment, my sticks, my luggage and everything. I'm walking across 7th Avenue and I'm dropping stuff and got my cowboy hat on. You know, I don't know what the heck I'm doing. Uh, and people are honking horns and I'm really, literally, I was just sweating because I was so nervous and everything going on. So the biggest thing though, is I, I got into Madison Square Garden. It was the day of the game. I wasn't playing. Um, and, you know, again, my, I ne never had any contact with the NHL at all. So I didn't know what to expect, you know, what the locker rooms are like or anything. So when I walk in the locker room, you know, they got, you know, David Game, the trainers do a great job. You know, every stall is you know perfectly. The gloves are in the same place. Skates are hanging up. Jerseys are there. You know, walk in, you see some of the jerseys like Barry Becks and Ron Greshner, Ron Dugay, and Maloney brothers. And Phyllis Mozito's jersey was up there because he's playing, obviously. And so it's uh, and again, they wanted to get me out of there before the players started showing up so they could concentrate on playing. But Phil Esposito happened to get there early. And he comes walking in the room, and I'm like, oh, my God. Like, I could have died and gone to heaven, right, just to be in the same room as Phil Esposito. Right. And I could see him over there talking to the trainers. He didn't know who I was, and there's no reason why he would. But uh, he was asking questions. The trainers were telling him who I was. And uh, he walks over to me. And as he's walking over to me, like, seriously, it was like the, the strangest feel. Like, I wanted to be there. But it's almost like, Jesus, it's unbelievable this is happening. And uh, he walks over. And he says, Tom, great to meet you. I've heard great things about you. Uh, can't wait to start playing with you. you know? And again. He didn't, the trainers had just told him that, but still just for him to take the time to walk over to me, it meant so much to me. And uh, he was fantastic. He was fantastic the next year when I came up and played, but uh, those experiences, you never forget that all the first stuff. 
Just wanted to take a minute to let you guys know that today's episode of Locked On New York Rangers is brought to you by Built Go. Built Go will help you break through your wall. It is the healthy replacement for your energy drink, but the energy is not fake. It's lasting and natural. And I can tell you from experience, it's a fantastic product to use before playing baseball, tennis, or even frisbee golf. Built Go comes to us all from the same people who brought us the world's fastest growing protein bar, Built Bar. It will help you break through your wall. Whether it's a mental or physical wall, break through it every day with Go. It's easy to take in one and a half ounce packages, put it in your briefcase for the most focused presentation ever, your golf bag to power through the back nine, or put it in your pocket to get through the day. Built Go is the best workout gel on the market, plus it's natural, so it's better for the body. It comes in three delicious flavors, peanut butter, honey, chocolate coconut, and chocolate mint. How does Built Go work so well? Built Go combines energy gel with collagen protein. Collagen protein is fast absorbing, so it gets into my system fast, plus it's easy on the stomach. Visit BuiltGo.com and use promo code LOCKED and you'll get 30% off your next order. Use promo code LOCKED for 30% off at BuiltGo.com. Let's go. You know, the, the next thing I want to ask you about kind of as we just kind of go through your career here. Uh, so I looked on HockeyReference.com. It looks like your first uh, Ranger home game was actually the third game that you played in, and it was against the Pittsburgh Penguins. That's right. So what's it like, man? I mean, you're jumping on the Madison Square Garden ice for the first time. You're, you're skates at the ice, and wow, you're a New York Ranger playing uh, in the garden. Here we go. I mean, what's that moment like for you? Well, it's funny. I've told this for some reason the story's come up a few times. So building up to that – so back in those days, they don't actually come up to you and say, okay, you've made the team. You know, although I was with the team for the first couple of games, I really hadn't, you know, they they'll come up to you and say, well, okay, now you can get a place to stay. So first game is in Boston and I mean, I'm nervous, you know, it's the Boston garden. It's my first, I've played the preseason obviously, but it's still, it's my first NHL regular season game. I was so nervous. I, uh, I went to shoot the puck around the back of our net. I banked the puck off JD's John Davidson's leg and into our net. I scored on our own. Oh no. In my <laughs> first game in the NHL's first period. And it's like, you know, there's no, like you come back to the bench and it's not like there's a teaching moment there where the coach can sit you down and say what you did wrong. It's they're all looking at you. Like the whole team's looking at me like, what the heck are you doing? You idiot. So uh, I got through that game. Next game was in Toronto the next night. And that was my hometown. So my parents were in the building and everything. And I'm thinking to myself, I've worked my whole life to get here. And I'm not, I, I, I can't, I got to do something. I can't let this happen. And uh, so early in the first period, there's this player, Robert Picard, good, good defenseman. I was carrying the puck through the neutral zone. Uh, and the guys were laughing the other day talking about it because that was the most I carried the puck, I think, in, in 11 years in the NHL. And um, he butt-ended me. And it wasn't like a real dirty butt-end. It was more like the hook me. But it was right in front of our bench. And the bench jumped up like they were outraged. You know, yelling at the referee because it, it was somewhat of a dirty play. So I think to myself, I can't, after what happened last night, I can't let this happen. So I got up and I just drilled him, knocked him out cold at center ice. Um, after the game, they told me to get a place to stay. So I'd made the team. So now the third game comes along, we're going into Madison square garden and, uh, the garden's a special place, you know, uh, you know, after, you know, again, I played some games, played in Boston, played in Toronto, had some preseason games, but the garden is, um, you know, the garden faithful when you're a young kid, uh, like they're so into the team, like the diehard Ranger fans that everything that happens is, uh, you can feel it in the building and good and bad. So if you make a bad play, it seems like that they're all over you, that they're booing you. They're not. And you don't realize that at first as a young player, they love the team. They love the players. They just want to do well. So if a bad thing happens, they're like, they're like disappointed. Like you are that something bad has happened. But then once something good happened, they're with you. Like they're with you either way. It's just the, right. the whole aura in the building is, you know, like you can feel the tension and all that kind of stuff. So it's a little nerve wracking at first, but, uh, it's an unbelievable place. I, I tell a funny story um, really in my career. 
well, it must have been my second year because Herb Brooks was a coach. Because people ask all the time, what's it like to play at the Garden? And, you know, to that note about, you know, the fans being into it so much, uh, we were playing, must have been playing a bad game. There's a TV timeout. And I was on the ice and Herb's on the bench and he's irate and he's yelling at all of us, you know, and you, you want to pay attention. You want to make eye contact with him, you know. And, and so as I'm looking at him, I can also see the fans up behind the bench. And this, uh, this beautiful woman comes walking down, you know, all dressed up with a fur coat and a whole bit. And she's staring at me, you know, and I'm this young 23, 24-year-old guy. So, of course, you, you have a responsibility. <laughs> You're looking at her. And, uh, her. But I'm trying to pay attention to Herb. Now she gets walking right down towards the glass and she continues to stare at me. And I'm thinking like, she's going to give me your phone number or something through the glass, like the partition of the glass. And I'm thinking that's not as much as it's good. It's not good because Herb's going to flip out. Right. She gets right down to the glass. And now the other guys in the team start to see this happening. And she gets down to the glass. She, she starts banging on the glass. She goes, Laidlaw, you suck. You're terrible. You're <laughs> so I went from thinking that I was like the, you know, Mr. Playboy, whatever, to uh, this woman yelling at me. And that was just typical of uh, uh, Ranger fans. And probably if I made a good play the next time, she would have been saying I was the best player out there. But, uh, you know, they're pretty passionate about the game. Yeah, you know, it's funny you mentioned Herb Brooks. I have him written down in my notes over here. And I was going to ask you about him at, at some point, you know, uh, playing for Herb Brooks. Uh, not yeah. too long after the Miracle on Ice, of course. I figure yeah. we, might, we might as well just jump into that right now. I mean, what was it like playing for Herb Brooks? Was he? His- it was great. I mean, he. You know, it's one of those things that when he's coaching you, uh, like now I look back and I, I love the man for what he did for me as a person, as a player. Uh, the things he taught me about life and everything, you know, and, and kind of his lessons about the game were also transferred to life. But when he's coaching you, you don't always love him. I mean, he's right. he's hard, right? I mean, he's he's doing it because he cares about you. Uh, and that's the way he handled himself when he coached. Uh, so, it, so my first year, I had a pretty good rookie year. I scored like six goals, 20-some assists, whatever. Really felt good about my game. So now we're coming back in the second season. So I'm fired up thinking I'm going to be, you know, have a big role in the team. And so it's her first year. We've gone through training camp. We're at Rye Playland at our practice facility. And the day before the first game, at the end of practice, he calls everybody together at center ice. And he has this big speech about his expectations for the team, for all the individuals. You know, Barry Beck, you're our captain. Ron Greshner, you run the power play, all this stuff. And he, at the end, he gets to me. And this is right in front of all the, the team. And he gets to me. I'm thinking, okay, he's going to say something really nice about me. He says, Laidlaw, if you get the puck, give it to somebody else. You're not supposed to have it. And I'm like, I'm mortified. Like, like you know, the guys are the guys are dying laughing. He, I found out later, a while later, uh, that he he felt like I was tough enough mentally to handle that, and it's kind of like he did a lot of this stuff like to kind of uh, pull all the other guys together, and it worked. And maybe all the other guys were dying laughing. We all we all high five, and it was like kind of funny in a little bit. So the the strategy worked for him, uh, and you know, it was actually good advice for me too that I was you know I was best suited to be that defensive defenseman that moved the puck up to the forwards, and so it was good advice as well. But that's where Herb did things. Just wanted to take a minute to let you guys know that today's episode of Locked On New York Rangers is brought to you by Built Bar. It is the best tasting protein and energy bar that I have ever had. It's kind of hard to explain. You just have to experience it for yourself. It's got real chocolate, amazing flavors, and unlike a lot of other protein bars, energy bars, you don't need a gallon of water to get rid of that weird, funky aftertaste that sometimes comes with the other bars. It's just good, and it actually kind of tastes quite a bit like a candy bar. It has an amazing combination of low calories, high protein, and low sugar. There are no crazy additives, and if you compare it to the most popular men's bar, Cliff, it is half the calories, seven times fewer carbs, seven times fewer sugar grams, and more protein. How can it be that good and taste that good? I don't know. You just got to try it for yourself. Go to BuiltBar.com and use promo code LOCKEDON to get $10 off of your first box at BuiltBar.com. 
Once again, use promo code LOCKEDON and get $10 off your first box at www.builtbar.com. One thing that I definitely got to ask you about, I was looking at some clips on YouTube. I got to ask you about at least one fight you were in. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, one that really kind of intrigued me, I, I found this one. You guys are playing the Flyers. I think it was 1981. And um, I have all my notes written down here. So basically the Flyers score a goal against you guys. And uh, somebody on the Flyers, Hoffmeyer, I think his name was, it was uh, – I'm thinking right, it was right at the center race. It was Adams that I got in a scrap yeah, with, I think. Yeah, yeah. Well, but this guy, he started the fight. He kind of sucker punched one of your teammates. Yes, and then, yeah. And then everybody gets together. There's a big skirmish. Everybody's kind of, you know, tussling and everything. But it seems like it's starting to calm down a little bit. And then you and uh, Greg Adams, all of a yeah. sudden, you both just throw the gloves down and you're punching. What, what happened there? What was said? How did, that, how did that happen? It is funny. I hadn't seen that video. Obviously, I hadn't seen any of the fight tapes here until, you know, because we didn't have YouTube back there. So when I watched that fight, at first I was like, she's Tom. Like, because I snapped there. You know, he was being, um, I, like, he was a somewhat of a tough guy. He wasn't a heavyweight. He's kind of a middleweight. But, you know, he was, but he was saying something to me, kind of like, like mocking me, kind of like, what are you doing? You're like, you don't fight or whatever, all that kinds of stuff. And at first I was like, and, and I kind of fallen into that role that I was that guy that could fight, but wanted me on the ice. So I didn't fight that often, but he was getting like, almost like, like embarrassing me, you know? And I said, that's it. I've got to teach this guy a lesson. And then you, you're thinking too, okay, not only am I going to teach him a lesson, but I'm going to remind all his teammates that yes, I can handle myself. So play the game fair and square with me and I'll do it with you. But if you want to start that stuff. So um, I'll never forget. I hit him with a pretty good one too, knocked him down. And you won uh, the fight. Yeah. Yeah, so it was uh, – somebody else saw it recently. Like, it's funny when you – especially because the game has changed a little bit now. So when people see those old fights and the way we handle ourselves back then, they're, then, you know, now they see me in this true grit life and doing things, being this, you know, nice guy, you know, that kind of stuff. And they see the old fights and they go, like, Tom, what is what is up with that? It's like the big difference. So it was uh, – but it's one of those things you, you had to do back then. If you let people push you around like that, even mentally or, or like verbally push you around, then uh, you're going to be in trouble. So. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, you know, some things never change. You know, it's Rangers Flyers. It, it's still, yeah. even to this day, there's nastiness when uh, those two teams are on the rink together. So Absolutely, yeah. Rangers, Rangers Flyers, Rangers Islanders, Rangers Devils, uh, particularly though the Rangers Island. It was different with the Rangers and Islanders, the battles we had, as much as it got a little nasty, there's a lot more respect for both sides. Like, obviously, we really respected them. They're winning their cups. And, and we had Clark Gillies on a podcast recently, and, and he talked about how much respect they had for us, which was Kind of nice to hear, you know, because they were, they were the ones that were winning all the time. Uh, the Rangers Flyers series were, man, they crossed the line a few times. Like, there's some stuff that happened where, you know, like, you know, Dave Brown cross-checking Thomas Sandstrom and getting 10-game suspension, that kind of stuff. You know, typically with the Islanders, if, if they were going to do something, it would be a fight or something, right? It wasn't really that dirty or dirty, nasty stuff like that. So it was a little different for both teams. For sure, for sure. Um, now, one other thing I want to ask you about, we talked about, you know, obviously the experience playing in Madison Square Garden, but I wanted to talk about, you know, specifically playing in the playoffs in Madison Square Garden because uh, every year you were there, the Rangers did make the playoffs. So, yeah. I mean, what is it like? I mean, I've never even been there as a fan. Yeah. Uh, how can you explain the electricity oh. of uh, the Garden in a playoff game in a, in a heated series against a rival? I just got goosebumps just now just thinking about it because yeah. it was, you know, it was incredible. It's just um, – you know, I, I'd gone back to a game uh, like probably 10 years ago when I was at a playoff game. And I remember they, the crowd started going, the building was shaking. Like the stands, you know, were actually shaking. There was so, so much going on. And that's how it like felt when you were playing. Like uh, the, it, you know, I can remember times, uh, like so I had this relationship with Herb where, you know, Herb would never coddle me at ever, you know, like he, he knew every guy in the team. And he knew what like kind of pushed the guy. So 
it could come down to me. Let's say we're late in the game, like a minute to go. We got to kill a penalty. You're sweating. You got blood all over you. It's a playoff game. You know, you know, guys are pounding each other out there. And he come down to me and literally kick me in the rear end and say, "Hey, get get the f out there!" Like he wouldn't ask me how I was doing. He wouldn't say, "Tom, are you okay?" What it did for me was it basically said, "Okay, I want Laidla out there." Even if he's only at 75% of what he normally can play at, I want him out there. So when he would do that in a playoff game at Madison Square Garden, I'll tell you, like, I would fly. I didn't care how tired I was, how hurt I was. I would fly over the boards because it's partly him coming down, you know, him wanting me on the ice, and then the crowd going nuts. And they weren't going nuts for me, but it was just going at the whole scenario. Uh, Yeah, it was special. I mean, if you – in fact – I was going to say, if you can't get up for those games, you're really in trouble. It's more, you've got to calm yourself down for those games. For me, because I, especially me, I'm a defensive defenseman, so I have to think out there more and read and react. If I'm overplaying things, then I, I get myself in trouble. So it was more really like, okay, calm down. Like, don't get all wrapped up in this. And again, it's good and bad too, right? I mean, if, if something goes wrong for the Rangers, I mean, the Ranger fans are, like, like I said, they're with us. Like, they really believe, and they are, like, part of the team. So if something's gone wrong for the team – the Ranger fans view it the same way for them. So you could feel it in the building. Now the flip side is when something's going well, man, it's, it was incredible. So it was a pretty special place. And I tell you what, I don't think you even realize how great it is until like when I got traded away and went to Los Angeles and came back to Master Square Garden, you really realize like, wow, I, you know, now I, I see it from a different way. You're almost on the outside looking in. So it's a special place. Yeah, for sure. Um, now, was there ever a time uh, when you were on the Rangers? I mean, as we mentioned, you know, you made the playoffs every single season. Was there ever a certain season where you felt like, man, this is a Stanley Cup team? You know, we've got the right, we've got the talent, we've got the toughness, we've got the goaltending, we've got the grit, everything, the whole package. Was there ever one year where it was like, this is our year? We yeah. are going to do it this year. Yep, absolutely. The year we lost in the first, it's funny because we lost in the first round to the Islanders. It's when Kenny Morrow scored in overtime. It was a five-game series. Yep. It was game five. We had the Islanders down two games to one at Madison Square Garden coming back there, and we beat them pretty bad in game three. Um, and then they came back and won game four at Madison Square Garden. We should, if we won that game, and even Clark Gillies said that they really felt that if, that if we had won that series, we could have gone and won the Stanley Cup that year. That's how, that's how they viewed us as well. And it was, you know, we, it was a great game. I, I watched the game a couple of times now. The up, it was one of the best playoff games I've ever seen. I hate to say that because we were in it, but it was just like, the again, it, it was at Nassau Coliseum game five. And it's the same way at Nassau Coliseum when the Islanders were playing the, the Rangers back then too. It was like that building was pretty uh, raucous as well. And we played great. We did so many fantastic things. And just, it was, uh, I think Lenny Hanlon was our goaltender. He played fantastic for us. Barry Beck had got hurt the, the game before, so he couldn't play in game five. But even then, you know, we, we played a real solid game, and so did they. And then, uh, you know, Kenny Morrow, who really didn't, was not known as a goal scorer, just threw one at the net from the hash boards along, along the side of the uh, boards there and, and scored on Glennie Hanlon. And it was, uh, it was that, like, oh, my God. Like, because you just felt like – there was two things. You felt like, like you said, you felt we were good enough. And at, to, to the Islanders' credit – if you look back when they won all those cups, they just find they, they found a way to win all the times. There's many times I remember series against Pittsburgh, they were down. John Tonelli scored a big goal for him. We had the Islanders who should have, I really believe we should have beat them. Kenny Morrill scores a goal for him. So it's just, they always found a way to win. They just had that character to them. So it was, uh, you know, one way you were like, you're excited that you were part of such a great series, but you want to win it, right? Especially against course, the Islanders. Yeah. 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 It's, it's funny, like between the Islanders and the Oilers, I mean, they really prevented a lot of, a lot of teams, a lot of players from ever winning a Stanley Cup in that yeah. era. I mean, totally, it was the Islanders yeah. or, or the Oilers, yeah. Yeah, definitely. You're right. The, the Oilers were the same way, you're right. And when I got traded out to L.A., I had to play against them. 
And uh, they had that same aura about them, you know, at that point too, that they really, you know, it's almost like a cockiness almost, but it's not like it's, they've, they've earned the right to be like that. You know, they right. like I remember in LA when I first got traded there, the first uh, series we played against Edmonton, uh, my first year there, we beat Edmonton in the first game in Edmonton. And we beat them pretty good. Like, I can't remember what the score was. They came back and just spanked us the next game. You know, they just they said, okay, let's flip the switch. Now let's go play. And uh, so they had the same mentality the Islanders did. Yeah, and, uh, you know, talking about the, you know, being on the Kings and playing the Oilers in the playoffs, I want to ask you about that series specifically because I know that there was a year where you guys playing the Oilers in the first round of the playoffs, you fall behind three games to one. You yeah. come back, you win game five, you win game six, you win game seven. And this is when the Oilers were the Oilers. I mean, they had yeah. won the cup for the last five years. Uh, what do you remember about that series? I'm sure you can. Well, you can that, that was that, one. Yeah. that was the first year that Gretzky had gotten traded to LA. Yep. So now here we are playing Edmonton uh, in the first. Uh, so it was like all that stuff going on. You know, Marty McSorley was on our team now. Mike Krushelinski was on our team now. Guys that you know played big roles with Edmonton, and yeah, they were they rolled over us and erupted three games to one. I remember uh, Timmy Waters. I don't know if people remember him. He, he and I uh, we were defense partners at that, and we played against uh, Craig Simpson and Norm Lacombe. And uh, those guys were basically, they were sent out there to be crash test dummies. They're like, they're out there trying to run us over. Like for some reason they said, we want you to hit Laidlaw Waters every time. So the first four games are running us and running. And Timmy and I finally said to each other, that's enough. We got to stop this. And I'm not saying this is why we won, but it's like the whole mentality for our team. So Norm Lacombe goes to hit Timmy Waters and Timmy, was, he, he ducked a little bit. And so Norm Lacombe goes flying over him and goes head first in the boards. And then Craig Simpson, there's a funny video of this too. Uh, he, he came to hit me and I warned him. I said, listen, you keep it up and I'm going to hurt you. I'm, I'm telling you right now. So he came running at me again and I pretended the puck was down on my skates and I put my elbow up and just dro dropped him with a nice elbow. The referee didn't even call it penalty. And, and other guys on our team were doing the same thing. We just said, all right, this is enough. We're going to win because we felt like we should be winning the series. And we came back and won the series. Um, and they got a little cocky too in game. So I think we'd won, uh, it must have been game four was in, was in uh, L.A. And the, uh, the Edmonton guys apparently were saying all to the guys working in the locker rooms. And he got back to us and said, well, season's over, guys. We'll see you next season. Kind of like meaning they're going to win the next game. Edmonton, sure. Yeah, that got yeah. back to us. And, like, they were being really cocky. And I remember it's like that. We had that whole attitude. Like, yeah, that's enough. We're, we're done with this. And uh, we got to roll one through the game. So that was a special series, too. Like, and the win game seven was in L.A. to win that. And that's the first year Wayne was there. Like, that was another great one, too, because – uh, you know, we had a great team. We had a really good team before, you know, and the fans in L.A. were great, too. But when Wayne came along, it was a whole different thing, right? It turned into all the movie stars and everything were there. So to win game seven with him there against his old team in a, in a great Western Forum, which was now like it was I wouldn't say it was exactly like Madison Square Garden, but it was pretty raucous as well. So that was a pretty memorable series. That was good. Definitely. And uh, one other thing I wanted to ask you about, of course, you know, the Rangers, they break the 54 year curse, jinx, whatever you want to call it in 1994. This is only a few years after you retire. Um, I'm wondering, like, did you have any friends on that team, anybody that you played with? And were you rooting for the Rangers just like the rest of us, just going crazy? Yeah. yeah. I knew some, I'm trying to think. I think I knew some guys. But, you know, when you get traded away, you kind of, like, you, you'll know them, but you don't necessarily keep in touch. And, again, there's no cell phones or anything back then either. So it's not like we're texting each other to keep in touch. Yeah. I remember two things. Uh, part of me was jealous because I knew how great it would be to win in New York City, right, to have a, a parade in Manhattan. So I, there's no question. I was jealous. I was and not in a bad way, like wanting them to lose, um, uh, you know, because just you wanted to be a part of it. But the other part of it was saying like, wow, that, that that's incredible. Because, again, you know 
what I mean. And, and look at those guys now. We do a lot of events together, Stefan Mateau and Richter and Leach, Messier and those guys. And they get treated in a whole different way, and they should uh, because of what they did. You know, they're just they're those guys that, again, it's not the Rangers, unfortunately, haven't been winning multiple cups. So to have that team win that way uh, at Madison Square Garden is pre pretty special for them, too. So, yeah, there's no question. I'm still jealous. I would have loved to be uh, a player for the Rangers at that time. Of course, of course. Um, now, changing gears just a little bit here, I wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about your True Grit Life brand. And, you know, I've, I've done some reading about it, but I figure you can explain it a heck of a lot better than I can. So the floor yeah. is yours. Just, just tell us what you can about it. Yeah. So I, I've, had, I've been very fortunate in my life. You know, I played in the NHL for 11 years. I started in the agent business right away after that, representing players. I worked for the largest management company in the world for a few years. So I was an agent for 22 years. I then shifted and I have this guy, I still have this company called Post Game Strategies, and it's really designed to create opportunities for former athletes. And it's whether it's finding money for deals or deals for money or whatever. Uh, and, and that's been great. Uh, and, and it's, you know, it's a real, it's built a real network of people. Um, and I had uh, my son in particular was really into the hip hop artist, my youngest son, and he, he liked the music, but he was also interested in how they branded themselves. You know, like, uh, you know, I think. 50 cent gets shot or whatever it was and all these different things. And if, if you see the way, what they've done, they're pretty smart guys in a lot of ways, you know, they're branding and marketing. They've been very good. So he was always pushing me to brand and market myself. And I was like, Oh, I mean, I'm an old farm boy from Canada. You know, I scored 25 goals in 10 years. Like who really cares about Tom Laidlaw? So I thought, okay, so let's get on. We got on Facebook and Instagram and, uh, Kind of, you know, looked around at what some of the guys, guys were doing. There was just there was this Navy SEAL, Jocko Wilnick, that, that has really done pretty well. And he was getting up early at 4 o'clock and, you know, posting pictures of his wristwatch, him getting up and all this kinds of stuff. And I thought, ah, that's pretty cool. I said, but I can't do 4 o'clock. I've got to get up at 3.30. I've got to beat him. I just can't do the same thing as him. Of course, you know, the competitive juices are there. Um, so I started getting up every day and I'd post a picture of my clock uh, on my microwave and a, and a video of me uh, pouring my cup of coffee. And, you know, I started getting a following, and particularly, you know, Ranger fans and stuff and hockey fans. Well, the people like it's pretty cool. But for months, I would do the same thing. It was the video of the clock and the coffee. And then finally, I started learning more. People were trying to help me. They said, Tommy, now you can post different stuff. You don't have to post a thing. Like, I didn't get that concept. I didn't really understand Instagram or Facebook. So we started doing more stuff. And it's really evolved now where now it, and one of the things that's really helped me is I'm, I'm doing a book. And it's called True Grit Life. And I'm working with the writer and he, he really, um, during the whole process, had to, like, forced me to kind of sit back and, and think to myself, okay, why am I the way I am? And it really led back to growing up on the farm with my father and grandfather. We had a dairy farm and they would get up every day. It had to be 365 days a year. They're getting up to milk the cows. They've got to milk the cows twice a day. And it didn't matter how sick they were, how they felt, tired, whatever it was. They, nobody's writing any great articles about them. And they were, like to me, they were true grit, you know, and that's really how, you know, and again, I've learned more along the way. Uh, so it, true grit life is really about myself, other people, and there's many people around the world that are doing the same thing. They just are great people, get up, and again, not getting any accolades. It's really to say to people, you don't have to be Wayne Gretzky or LeBron James to be a glorious person. You can still be a great person because you're doing those little things right all, all, all the time, every day. So little things happened to me. I, like I saw the video of this Admiral William McRaven. It's a famous video where he is a former Navy SEAL Admiral. And uh, he was making a, a presentation at a graduating class at the University of Texas. And he talked about the 10 things that he learned from Navy SEAL training. And the first thing he talks about, so here's this guy getting up there. He's got the white suit on, you know, and all the awards on his chest and everything. He's got that hard look. He starts talking about the importance of making your bed every morning and making it perfect. 
And uh, so I, I started doing that and it's, it was amazing how it kind of starts the whole transformation for you because it's the first thing you do in the day. You don't have to do it. You don't have to make it perfect because uh, nobody else is going to know. It's not like the rest of the world sees it. Uh, but it's, it, it basically says if you can't do the little things right, you won't be able to do the big things right. And it starts the process. So now, so I'm up at 3.30, the bed gets made perfect before you leave the room. So when I go out for a, what I used to call a walk in the morning, first thing in the morning at like 4 o'clock, I now call it a march because I try to get the most out of every stride that I take. And so that kind of leads the way. So when I go to the gym now, we talk about having your mind in the muscles. So when you're working out, you're getting the most out of every rep that you take. So the whole idea is of just about it's not necessarily about trying to be like somebody else. It's trying to be the best version of yourself. You try to get better every day at everything you're doing. And you can really train your mind and your body by doing all those little things, making the bed perfect, getting the most out of each step on your march. When you're doing your exercise and get the most out of that in your relationships with people. Like when you're talk to people and I've been very fortunate to be around these, around these Navy SEALs. Now I've done podcasts with them and go to events and it's amazing with them because they're these intelligent guys who are so highly trained and so confident in themselves when they engage with you, like if they say to you, how are you doing today, Tom? It's not just a casual question uh, to, to be nice. They actually care and they sit there and listen. So all those little things, like, and again, I constantly evolve. I'm cost, constantly learning new things from people. Uh, and it's, it's, it's about getting better at everything you do, but making sure that you get the most out of everything that you do and that you give the most to other people. And so that's the true good life, you know, and it kind of led to even, you know, all the stuff with a survivor. Like I told them when they uh, had me come out to LA for casting, I told him, I said, listen, I'm up every day at 3.30. I make the bed perfect. You know, so when I go out there, there's no going to be any crying from Tom Laidlaw. There's not, you know, a lot of people doing that survivor. I said, this is the way I lead my life. And they were like, wow, was, that's cool. They really wanted to be part of that. And that's what I've learned too is that um, like when you're given the best version of yourself to people, uh, it's kind of infectious, right? It's, people want to be around that. Right. Uh, and that's really, like, for me, my life has just grown. Like my, the people I get to meet now, the things I get to participate in, it just grows and grows because of true good life. All right, once again, a big, big thanks to Mr. Tom Laidlaw for joining the show here today, and a big thanks to you guys as well for continuing to tune in to the Locked On New York Rangers podcast, your team, every day. And make sure you come back next week as well, because Monday's episode, we're going to have part two of our conversation with Tom Laidlaw. Going to be talking a little bit about the current New York Ranger team, going to get Tom's thoughts on the current crop of players, as well as the rebuild as a whole. And we're also going to talk about his appearance as a contestant on Survivor. So a lot to look forward to there. And if you'd like to get in touch with this podcast, please send an email to LockedOnNYRangers at gmail.com. Once again, that is LockedOnNYRangers at gmail.com. Definitely give us a follow on Twitter as well, at LO underscore NY underscore Rangers. Once again, that is at LO underscore NY underscore Rangers. Thanks again, guys. I'll see you next time.